right, let's get into uh, Ezekiel. I'm telling Jen, we're going to do chapter 48 tonight. Call it good. <laughs> yeah, I did say 50. I did say 50. She immediately corrected me. That was wonderful. <laughs> yep. You didn't know the difference, Greg. Don't act like you knew the difference. <laughs> All right. Chapter 40, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, who wants to get started at get us reading? We'll do a couple sections of the scripture. Who wants to get started? All right, Chris, thanks. Where, where are we going to? <clears throat> well, Chris is going to start us off. When he gets tired, he'll think about you. In the five and twentieth year of our captivity, and the beginning of the year, and the tenth day of the month, and the fourteenth year after that, the city was smitten. In the same self day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither. Two. And the visions of God brought me, he, into the land of Israel, and set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south. Three. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand, and a measuring reed. And he stood in the gate. Four. And the man said to me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears, and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee. For to the intent that I should not show thee unto thee, art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou seest of the house of Israel. 5. And behold, a wall on the outside of the house round about, and in the man's hand a measuring reed of six cubits long by the cubit, and a hand breadth. So he measured the breadth of the building, one reed, and the height, one reed. Then came he unto the gate, which looked towards the east, and went up the stairs thereof, and measured the threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad, and the other threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad. Seven. And every little chamber was one reed long, and one reed broad. And between the little chambers were five cubits, and the threshold of the gate by the porch of the gate was one reed. And he measured also the porch of the gate within, one reed. Nine. Then measured he the porch of the gate, eight cubits, and the post thereof, two cubits, and the porch of the gate was inward. And the little chambers of the gate eastward were three on this side and three on that side. They three were of one measure, and the post had one measure on this side and on that side. Eleven. And he measured the breadth of the entry of the gate, ten cubits, and the length of the gate, thirteen cubits. The space also before the little chambers was one cubit on this side, and the space was one cubit on that side. And the little chambers were six cubits on this side, and six cubits on that side. He measured then the gate from the roof of one little chamber to the roof of another. The breadth was five and twenty cubits, door against door. He made also posts of threescore cubits, even unto the post of the court round about the gate. Fifteen. And from the face of the gate of the entrance to the face of the porch of the inner gate were fifty cubits. And there were narrow windows to the little chambers, and to their posts there within the round gate about, and likewise to the arches. And windows were round about inward, 
and upon each post were palm trees. 17. Then brought he me into the outward court, and lo, there were chambers, and a pavement made for the court round about. Thirty chambers were upon the pavement. And the pavement by the side of the gates, over against the length of the gates, was the lower pavement. Then he measured the breadth from the forefront of the lower gate unto the forefront of the inner court without, a hundred cubits eastward and northward. And the gate of the outward court that looked upon the north, he measured the length thereof and the breadth thereof. 21. And the little chambers thereof were three on this side and three on that side. And the posts thereof and the arches thereof were the, after the measure of the first gate. The length thereof was 50 cubits and the breadth five and 20 cubits. 22. And their windows and their arches and their palm trees were after the measure of the gate that looked toward the east. And they went up unto it by the seven steps, and the arches thereof were before them. And the gate of the inner court was over against the gate towards the north and towards the east. And he measured from gate to gate a hundred cubits. After that, he brought me towards the south, and behold, a gate towards the south. He measured the post thereof and the arches thereof according to these measures. And there were windows in it, and in the arches thereof round about, like those windows, the length was fifty cubits, and the breadth five and twenty cubits. Twenty-six. And there were seven steps to go up to it, and the arches thereof were before them. And it had palm trees, one on this side and another on that side, upon the post thereof. Twenty-seven. And there was a gate in the inner court towards the south. And he measured from gate to gate towards the south a hundred cubits. All right. Except for verse 28. And he brought me to the inner court through the south gate. And he measured the south gate. It was of the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, and its vestibule were of the same size as the others. And both it and the vestibule had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 25 cubits. There were vestibules all around, 25 cubits long and 5 cubits broad. Its vestibules faced the outer court. Palm trees were on its jams, and in its stairway had eight steps. Then he brought me to the inner court on the east side, and he measured the gate. It was at the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, and its vestibules were of the same size as the others, and both it and its vestibule had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 25 cubits. Its vestibule faced the outer court, and it had palm trees on its jams, and on either side, and its stairways had eight steps. Then he brought me to the north gate, and he measured it. It had the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, and its vestibules were of the same size as the others, and it had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 25 cubits. Its vestibule faced the outer court, and it had palm trees on its jams, and on either side, and its stairway had eight steps. There is a chamber with its door in the vestibule of the gate where the burnt offerings was to be washed. And in the vestibule of the gate were the two tables on either side on which the burnt offerings and the sin offering and the guilt offering were to be slaughtered. And off to the side, on the outside as one goes up to the entrance of the north gate, were two tables. And off to the other side of the vestibule of the gate were two tables. Four tables were on either side of the gate, eight tables on which to slaughter. And there were four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offerings, a cubit and a half long, and a cubit and a half broad, and one cubit high, on which the instruments were to be laid with which the burnt offerings and the sacrifices were slaughtered. And hooks and a hand-breadth long were fastened all around within, and on the tables the flesh of the offering was to be laid. 
On the outside of the inner gateway, there were two chambers in the inner court, one at the north side facing south, the other at the side of the south gate facing north. And he said to me, this chamber that faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple, and the chamber that faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of Levi may come near to the Lord to minister to him. And he measured the court, a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits broad, a square. And the altar was in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple and measured the jams of the vestibule, five cubits on either side, and the breadth of the gate was fourteen cubits, and the side walls of the gate were three cubits on either side. The length of the vestibule was twenty cubits, and the breadth twelve cubits, and people would go up to it by ten steps. And there were pillars beside the jams on one on either side. Cubits. Reeds. I think I really enjoyed the King James there. That was beautiful there. Dither there and dither there. Wonderful. And you read it so well. I noticed that the CSB has it in feet. Does are they fairly certain as to what a measurement of a cubit was? Eight inches. Eight inches. Eight inches. Yeah. Okay. Sure, there's a variance. <laughs> you were looking at the CSP. Yeah, somebody gave me a CSP. <laughs> I'm just as surprised as you are. <laughs> <laughs> I got the whole team changed it. All right. Why do you guys show this to Ezekiel? Probably an obvious answer, but I'm sorry. Why did God show this to Ezekiel? Surely you have an answer. You I don't. So it's got to be an obvious answer, but I'm like, I don't, today I'm not feeling it. I don't know why. <laughs> I wonder if one of your little fifth graders told you a lot today, of I'm not today I'm not feeling it. <laughs> I teach her that, I mean, they probably do. Today I have a whole class just sit and stare at me. So it's pretty much the same they were feeling it. Well, verse 4 says, let's hear it. What's the last sentence in verse 4 of chapter 40 in the King James? The King James. For to the intent that I might show them unto thee, or that thou brought hither, declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. Yeah. There's your answer. Just to show it The sentence says in a alternative translation, report everything you see to the house of Israel. Matthew says, declare to the house of Israel all that you see. Okay. So he was just taking Ezekiel into the future to have him come back with a blueprint on how to build the temple. We're not, uh, you're, you're inferring something mm-hmm. the text doesn't say. How far in the future are you talking about? You said well, the future. Just, I mean, because this is what they built, so I'm just assuming that, you know, I mean, he's all a vision, this, this so obviously, never built. obviously it's... This was never built. This temple wasn't built? This mm-hmm. isn't the temple? That, okay. Do we think it's Christ? Because it says son of man. Ezekiel's the son of man. I know, but so the man is, is, who's talking to him is it Christ? Right, so he brought me there and I saw a man 
whose appearance was like bronze with linen cord and a measuring rod. What does that remind you of? Revelation. Yeah, Revelation. Yeah, and where else? Isn't that description pretty similar to Daniel? I thought there was a man with bronze in Daniel. Maybe not. I thought that there was a man with bronze in the book of Daniel. says uh, despite the despite his similarity Christ's appearance as described in Revelation 1 12-16 the angel in the form of man dressed in linen cannot have been the pre-incarnate Messiah because Christ would not need help from the angel Michael so an angelic being similar to one that appears in Daniel similar to one that appears in Revelation Appears to Ezekiel and gives him this guided tour on this temple. And tells him that he's supposed to declare it to the house of Israel. 
report everything you see to the house of Israel. My biggest problem with the whole thing is the altar. Is what? Is the altar and the sacrifices that it says, you know, here's all the instruments for the sacrifices. And there's a lot of specificity here in detail of, a, of some kind of building. And there it goes on for three more chapters. Yeah, that's something to look forward to. <laughs> I think I might be out in the next couple weeks. <laughs> I do have nursery next week, though. That's what <laughs> Make sure you come through here before you um, go to nursery. She's a nursery family. We're all going to volunteer for nursery until we're through with this. <laughs> you brought up the point, I think it was last week or, or recently, I can't remember exactly when. Pretty sure it was last week. You were saying that the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed, and you know the, the people that were in captivity with Ezekiel had gotten the news of that, and like how depressing and like discouraging that must have been, and you know maybe that was God's way of reassuring His people that He hadn't forgot about them. I mean, that would be a very tempting thing to think you know, if you were believing in God and that you were his people first after you've been carried off into captivity everything you'd hold held dear is probably you know been stripped away from you and then you hear that like your capital and your temple have been destroyed that would be pretty pretty hard to bear and then to get this word from a prophet you know Lord is saying, you know, God told me to tell y'all you know, that I have seen this temple. Here's the measurements exactly of what it is. I don't know. So, Josh, does the description necessitate building it? And that's the central issue. That's the elephant in the room, right? Just so that everyone's clear on what the entire evangelical church is wrestling about is, is this temple going to be built someday on this earth? Is that, that's, I mean, that's the elephant in the room. That's the major discussion. Is this temple, as described here, going to be built sometime on this earth? Is there any scripture that would speak to that? I don't know. Well, the, the one you keep bringing up, I wish I could reference for it, but it was saying that when Jesus became the sacrifice for our sins, that's it. That's Hebrews 10. Yeah, that's it. Done. End story. But Laurel brought up last week, and she doesn't have any problems with the continuation of blood sacrifices. Um, and so there are some that don't have a problem with that. The Israel as a nation wouldn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah yet. And so that does like the possibility that Israel could reproduce this temple thinking they will bring God back to the nation. We, we, we but see that now in the with the ultra-Orthodox Jews wanting to rebuild the temple. For that idea, is your idea is that the Messiah will probably build the temple. So. The actual response on Red Heifers is that they deliver on Texas. I've been hearing about Red Heifers for the last 30 years of my life. I don't know if they're going to say Red Heifers because they're babies. Because they grow into brown cows later. <laughs> <laughs> I just think the truth is we have very little knowledge on what this eternal kingdom looks like. 
So it's very hard to say what will or will not happen. Right. Other than the fact that in Revelation 22, it's unequivocally clear that there is no temple in the eternal kingdom because God himself is the temple. That there's no light, there's no sun in that kingdom because God himself is the light in that kingdom. So then that's what forces people to take this temple and put it in the millennial kingdom because they know that the eternal kingdom will not have a temple. So this kind of, you've got this domino effect occurring, which is, I read about a temple in Ezekiel. I read about its specific measurements, which dictates the fact that it's literal. Therefore, it has to be built someday. I know it can't go in the eternal kingdom, so it's got to go somewhere, and so I'll put it in the millennial kingdom. And you'll even hear it referred to as the millennial temple. Right, the millennial temple. Even though that adjective is never applied to this temple. You understand what I mean by that? Yeah, it doesn't doesn't specify. Never. Right, the word millennial is nowhere in Ezekiel. The word a thousand isn't in Ezekiel. The word a thousand with regard to a kingdom is nowhere in the Bible. I mean, you're doing all kinds of inferences, just so that everyone's clear. You get the word kingdom from the word reign. Mm -hmm. They'll reign with them. So if they're reigning, there must be a kingdom. And then you get the word thousand, so you turn it into a millennial kingdom. And then you go, okay, this is the only place that this could fit. And what I'm asking is, is this, is it enough to give a prophet a vision to encourage a people at a particular time and then that's it or does it necessitate a future as Heather said the future temple it just doesn't make sense to me why it's in the word of God if it was just supposed to be an encouragement to them after all of this in Ezekiel just be like oh here's all these extremely detailed blueprints but it's just supposed to show you that God is full of glory No, you're, I mean, Heather, your argument is fine. That's a good argument. There are, if Hansel was here, he would fully support that argument. There are plenty on that side. That's David McManus would would absolutely affirm, look, it's in there. It's got to be built because of the specificity. And the only place to put it is the Millennial Kingdom. Because you can't put it, you can't put it now. It could go now into the tribulation. There's no reason it couldn't. True enough. Yes, the Jews could build it, and then it could go into the to the um, tribulation and get utterly destroyed. Could it? Could it also be that what he showed him is what he sees as a temple, but the temple he's misinterpreting what God showed him, and it's something else entirely. That just I, I don't know. I'm just like. Is it? I don't understand. Like I'm with you. I don't think that Hebrews 10 allows for the uh, perpetuation of blood sacrifices. Right. I don't think that makes least, sense. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that. But that there's aren't pagan religions. The Jews are not living as a corporate nation. That's under salvation outside of Jesus. Salvation. So I don't they're living that. under essentially all the pretenses right now as to what they believe God wants them to do. 
Sure, I agree with you, Loretta, on that. Yeah, I would agree with you. They're pagans yeah. for all practical purposes. Yeah. We don't want to think of them as pagans. But that's where they fall. I mean, it's, it's no different than, you know, any other country that is primarily <coughs> pagan to a certain extent. Uh, a certain, not a certain extent, to a certain religion. Well, we look at the we look at the people in Thailand, and we show that they're giving orange soda to their um, gods through a straw, and we laugh at that. But this could be the same equivalency, and that it's there just for the confirmation of prophecy of the future. One of the things that's amazing about this temple, though, as you as you looked at the measurements, and it was. It was a little hard when Josh was reading, but I got it in the King James. And just, just narrowed in on me. Was um, the width of the walls is unreal, right? The width of the walls is overwhelming. I mean, to build a structure with walls this wide is incredible. I mean, you just ten feet wide walls. What are you talking about? Well, that says the walls aren't that thick, but she said she won't tell me where she's looking. Yeah, the, the, the talk about how incredible the walls are, the, the passing through the, the depths of them. But so I haven't read far enough. Where does God actually say He will dwell in this temple, or is it just a description of the temple with nothing? No, there's God's dwelling in the temple. They dwell in this, the other chapters. Oh. Right, which would be very encouraging to the Jews. Why would that be so encouraging? Because he left the temple. Right. So he's not forgotten about them. He's a covenant-keeping God. The temple. If if your God's left the temple and your temple is destroyed, the only thing left for you to conclude is your God's dead. Your God's impotent. Or he's totally like Neglected associated you. with you. Right. He's given up on you. Right. He's done with you. Yeah, he's done with you. He's, he's right. still there, but he's like, there's no hope for you. But this prophecy, this description, this vision would be phenomenally encouraging to you. I think it's really hard for us to grasp it because for us, the temple is not that big of a deal. But for them, the temple was everything, right? That's where God dwelt. That's where they worshiped their God. That's where atonement was made. That's where everything happened. That's the central of their thing. And that's destroyed. I don't even think what? The, the 10 feet. Are you talking about like the width of the walls and there's like a room inside the vestibules or inside the wall? You know? Yeah, like these gaps of time, space. Well, yeah. But, but there's something like there's inside. There's an outer wall and an inner wall and... And because you know, that's the way a lot of castles are built in, you know, in Europe, where there's you know, the walls actually yeah. there. So that may be the ten feet. I mean, I can see from the text how it's, it looks like it's still yet to be built. I mean, even in forty-three, verse eighteen, it says, "And you know, when it's to be built." All right, what's it say? Let's, let's read that. Uh, he said to be son of man, says the Lord God, these ordinances and the altar today when you shall make it. Drop a burn altars there on the spring of blood there. So it's like there's a pointed time for it to be built. Mm-hmm. Just from the text itself. 
Which, which again, it goes back to the entire thing of then we're going back to the Levitical priesthood, then we're going back to animal sacrifices. How do you reconcile that with the New Testament? Not to do it. Like, like, you know, you are to give a bull from the herd as a sin offering. I'm still in chapter 43 with you. To the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok who approach me in order to serve me. So if we're going to have a literal temple and we're going to have a literal bull, then we have to also have what? Yes. But in particular... Right, because yeah, I mean, can't you, you, you can't pick and choose what you're going to apply in a literal sense there. Right. You are to take some of the blood and apply it to the four corners of the altar and the four corners of the ledge and around the rim. And this way, you will purify the altar and make atonement for it. Then you are to take away the bull for the sin offering and must be burnt outside the sanctuary in the place appointed for the temple. On the second day, you are to present an unblemished male goat. As a sin offering, they will purify the altar just as they did with the bull. When you have finished the purification, you are presenting young, unblemished bull and unblemished ram from the flock. You are to present them before the Lord. The priest will flow salt on them and sacrifice them as burnt offerings to the Lord. You are to offer a goat for a sin offering each day for seven days. A young bull and a ram for unblemished also is offered. For seven days, the priests are to make atonement for the altar and cleanse it. In this way, they will consecrate it and complete the days of purification. Then on the eighth day and the afterwards, the priest will offer burnt offerings, fellowship offerings on the altar, and I will accept you. This is the declaration of the Lord. So to me, that does not sound like a memorial. You know why I'm mentioning memorial, right? Because that is the typical language that the commentators will use. In the same way that we memorialize the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through the bread and the wine, these sacrifices are a memorial to Christ's atonement. But when you read that, do you get any sense that that's a memorial? No. I'm not kind of going towards where the red is going, where maybe the Jews will build it, not necessarily because God wanted them to, but because they wanted to. And then he allows them to make sacrifices and then towards during the tribulation where the sacrifices start again. And they end up ceasing, like the Antichrist. Uh, I don't remember the <clears throat> details, but basically, at some point, the sacrifices start and then end again. So I wonder if this is the same one or. My only concern with that is in chapter 43, the Lord's glory is dwelling in the temple. That's the thing I was thinking about. That that's the sense. only thing, <clears throat> yeah. Oh, that's a minor detail. The entire purpose of this entire three chapters of temple is to see that God is glory. You know, mm-hmm. you know so if God's glory is in the temple, right? I thought so, you, you know, weren't feeling that. that. It just doesn't seem like enough, but you know. Yeah, that's, it's, it's like, you know, this or that, but then there's this. But it, it, it has, whatever it is, it has to be God ordained and righteous. So I don't think that it could be the pagan Jews. <laughs> He led me to the gate in verse number one of chapter 43. The face is east, and I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. 
His voice sounded like the roar of a huge torrent, and the earth shone with his glory. The vision I saw was like one I'd seen when he came to destroy the city, like the ones I'd seen by the Chabal, Chabar Canal. I fell face down. The Lord, Lord, entered the temple by the way of the gate that faced east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That pretty much destroys the idea that it is a pagan temple, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, I think my conclusion of the matter here is that this is a symbolic representation of the New Jerusalem. I think that's where I'm going to land. That fast? I mean, just... Well, I typically make decisions pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's just, um, I think it's all symbols of those things. Because this temple talks about a river, and the New Jerusalem talks about a river. So There's where, all kinds of measurements of the New Jerusalem. Where's the New Jerusalem? When is the New Jerusalem? It's um, after after all the things, and there's the beginning of the eternal kingdom. That's the new heaven and the new earth. The new Jerusalem is the new heaven. Anyway. But I thought the new heaven doesn't have a temple in it. Well, that's why. It's, it, but there's there is this new Jerusalem, and it it is not a temple. They don't use that word in Revelation, but it does describe the same similar things. It says. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the last seven plagues came and spoke with me, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried with me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel. And then, you know, it goes in and describes all the things. And then it talks about all the foundations and, you know, all the symbolic things of the new Jerusalem. But that's the whole city. That's not the temple. Right, but you know, this talks about a, there's a new city in chapter 48 at the end. A new city, and it does say this is part of the city. The 35 is really interesting. Verse 35 of chapter 48 is very interesting. Chapter 48. The very last of the book. Yeah. Last sentence. Yes. Yes. All right, let's hear it. Um, there's no physical temple at all. I think that's very likely. What if it's just a metaphor for something else? Because obviously it couldn't be in the new kingdom because there's no reason for sacrifices then. But it Well, I think I was wrong on my understanding of the walls being thick, but we continue down there. But I, I completely concur with you on the idea that the text does not necessitate a physical structure being built. But do you see that last sentence? Uh -huh. What's what's it say in the King James, Chris? It was round about eighteen thousand measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. Yeah, the Lord is there, which is which is Revelation twenty-two. Right. 
I mean, that's Revelation 22. If you, the, the dominant feature of Revelation 22 is, I will be their God and they will be my people. That is the, that is the overarching message of she said it first. I just said it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's something good in there with us, but. <laughs> wow! Do you hear that sarcasm? <laughs> So why do we vote for the next book? <laughs> yes, please. I, I, I think I agree with Lydia that it's definitely something spiritual because I don't think that undermines the hope that it would bring to the Jews in exile as well. But I also think that with prophecy, is, if there's some acknowledgement that we're not going to understand it, we're not meant to understand it completely either. So I think it, I think it makes sense that it could be completely spiritual because I, I, mean, I don't, I don't know, but I think. Like, that's what was coming to mind to me as well. It's like, does this necessarily have to be built? Because I think it's still full prophecy, whether it's a non-spiritual temple or the temple is referring to something else as a metaphor for, I, I don't know what, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it could be, but it's, it's just so descriptive, so exact, so specific, the details, the measurements and things. It's not like there's a lot of symbolism or anything so the note in the CSB says it's got a great picture of it and it says the temple described by Ezekiel was never built and it may be that its significance was intended to be purely symbolic this can be inferred from the fact that many of the features of this temple and its surroundings do not reflect the geographical realities of the site of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount in the land of Israel. Its distinctively cross-shaped plan is noteworthy. You talk about the details, you know, they're in these next several chapters. It, it seemed confusing to us because we're trying to understand everything. But going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, repeating what you were saying, how many times do we have memories of something that was special to us, and then when you tell others about it, you get into like all the nitty gritty details about everything? I'm thinking about like the scene from like Lord of the Rings where uh, Samwise is talking to Frodo, and he's like, "Can you smell the Shire? You know, can you see all? Can you feel the grass under your toes and all those different things?" If you were just reading that, like, what is Samwise trying to describe to Frodo? It'd be like, yeah, well, maybe, you know, like, no, he was just trying to encourage him, you know, at that particular time, like, he's explaining all the particular details. Um, we just got done at a range yesterday, and I was, I hadn't been to that range in like 12 years. I last time there, I was like a Joe, and I was telling all the guys in my platoon, I was like, the last time I was here, I was a saw gunner, you know, 12 years ago. And we got rained on, and my glove got stuck in my in the trigger well. I blew off all my ammo. It, 
you know, because it's something that really stood out in my mind, you know, and it meant, meant something to me. And I think that's kind of like what he might have been trying to do. It's like, hey, this is the, the, the temple that I saw. Let me tell you about how great the vision was. I saw this man with brass, and he had the appearance of brass, and he was like laying everything out for me. We don't get that because we're not Jews that were living in captivity for 25 years with our temple destroyed. We, we can't fathom what it would have been like for them. But for them to get this extremely descriptive thing, I'm sure it meant everything to them. And I, I, I would have been probably the most reassuring thing that they could have gotten received from the Lord at that time. So then what's its application to us today? Is there new kingdom coming? Okay. Well, that will go out. What else? For me, it's that God has promises that we don't understand. Okay. What does it say about the character of God in relationship to covenant-keeping attribute that he would take the time to take him through this incredible vision to encourage his people? God have given Israel that would have been more encouraging than a vision of a temple of this magnificence? What what could he have given Israel that would have been more encouraging? Because you remember when the temple was rebuilt after the 70 years of captivity? And there are two reactions. Yeah. The older folks are so discouraged because it's not Solomon's temple. Yeah. It's just shabby in comparison. Right. And then how does how does Herod build goodwill with the Jews? He builds them a temple. Yeah. Builds them a temple, yeah. Mm-hmm. At least, even if we don't come to a conclusion, hopefully, at least you're getting a better understanding of where the arguments are coming from, why people argue one direction, why people argue the other direction. You know, even if you, if you don't feel like you need to nail yourself down one way or the other, at least you're more informed when you hear someone say millennial kingdom, when you hear them say millennial temple, when, you're, when you hear someone talking about the arguments with bloody sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. You, at least you're more now aware of this is why they're saying there'll be sacrifices. Why are they saying there's going to be a temple? Because you've got this literal promise that it's going to be built if you take that verse constructed as a promise to do that. 
of course, we all have to be completely honest and say, me included, every one of us in this room say, we could be wrong. We could be wrong. That we, that we didn't get it right, that we didn't interpret it right, that there is going to be a this, or there isn't going to be this, that we got it wrong. I think that's extremely important you bring that point up, because I think a lot of people don't have that approach. You know, they look at something and they're like, I've got it figured out, this is how it is. And I think that's a pretty dangerous place to be. I think that if you want to pick a side, you have to say why you're picking your side. So the reason I'm not subscribing to a millennial kingdom with a temple is because I don't believe that we're doing bloody sacrifices all again. Because I think that's a repudiation to the finished work of Christ on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, I take that to mean it is finished. I don't take it to mean it's finished for the church age. And then God's okay with going back to a different age in which people do something different. Because in my understanding of the Old Testament, every bloody sacrifice ever offered from the very first one when God sacrificed blood to clothe Adam and Eve to the very last sacrifice ever given all pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. That they were all pointing to what Christ did. And then every sacrifice ever offered after that is offered by a pagan who doesn't believe in Christ. And I don't know what other way it could be because now if you're saying that a Jew can offer a sacrifice, then why can't someone else offer a sacrifice? And you have, and you have some real inconsistencies in your arguments there at that point. But everything that God does is right. That's our premise. So if God chooses for a reason not known to us to reinstitute a bloody sacrifice system in the millennial kingdom, subscribing to the idea that there's going to be one, then it's right. And we just own the fact that we didn't understand it. Just like the disciples didn't understand a lot of stuff. We didn't understand it. Because you got to know, you got to know that when they, they're, they're rebuilding this temple in 70 AD, I mean, not in 70 AD, in Christ's day, you got to know that they're thinking about this temple in Ezekiel. I mean, you got to know they're thinking about this temple, right? Uh, you got to think that they're thinking God's going to come occupy the Herod's temple all over again, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, that's the ultimate. Solomon prays that the Lord will come and the Lord says, sure, and he'll occupy it. And he does. And he blesses the kingdom. And then he withdraws himself. Well, they're not expecting that he's going to count now come in the flesh. What are they expecting? He's going to come to his temple. All over again and do it again. And a, a David, a son of David, will rule in this temple and we're going to get our kingdom back. If I remember, he left toward the east and he's coming back. Then he's coming back from the east. You know, so that was specific as well. Is that is that why you think a lot of like Catholic and Orthodox churches always face east? 
even I think even here in America, a lot of times tell like in the old days they would they'd put cemeteries facing towards the east. I, mean, I don't know if it's as much of a popular thing now, but like back in the old days it was. Okay, does anyone have a question? At least so that we can, even if we don't nail down a position, at least we have a better understanding of what the left and right sides are of the position. What are the problems with it? What aren't the problems with it? All right, what's yours, Selena? I keep, I keep thinking about the, the thing I actually um, circled this. There's a lot of places that you mentioned about major, major, the major, the length, the depth, the height. So I was keep thinking about the, our life has a length, which is how long we can live on the earth, the length it measures. Our life has a height, and uh, which is that uh, how how what is uh, the mountain we can climb up, and we, how high we can see. The depth is uh, how deep the relationship we can bring, we can build with him into the depth. <laughs> so he measures. This is our temple. This is the temple. I my perspective. So this is, I keep thinking, I said, I have a different pers perspective. But I dare not to say because it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> because we were focused on the, the physical temple, but actually I agree with you, that is a, a different thing, that um, our life definitely, the, not, the length, the depth, the height. And he measures, he measures, and he measures. He keeps seeing measures. And then he also mentioned about the sacrifice. The, the, uh, the offering to be lied on. What is that we can offer? This is my uh, association of what I can offer. In the three dimensions, we, a human being can understand the dimensions. He is a building, you the architecture's um, your terminology to tell the the details and just for not people can visualize them, but actually you can understand what we can sacrifice in which dimension. I wonder if they built models to it. I wonder if they built models. I saw a picture of a model, but I don't know whether it's just a 3D picture. No, but I mean in the, in the day. Mm -hmm. I mean, the models, I mean, obviously they don't tell us that we do it, but that's human nature. Yes. You're, you know, you're given dimension, you build it. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, Julia, I agree. Human nature. Because if you're a Jew, you're not thinking Jesus. The reason we're not excited about it is because we got that we know Jesus. Jesus is our, you know, everything. But if you're you're a Jew, you don't have the New Testament, you don't have Jesus. This is your this temple is your everything. 
So you can't help but to wonder, you know, did they build models of it? Did they? We know they didn't build the whole thing. There's no evidence that they ever built anything. But you can't help but to wonder, did they sketch it out? Did they do drawings of it? Did they, did they, because how else would you try to get a visual of all this language without trying to create some lines and some, I mean, somebody did it. The, the picture in the CSB is excellent. Right. Well, if you were a righteous Jew who received this message from Ezekiel, I would immediately think you were supposed to build it. Yeah. Like you wouldn't hear this and think, oh, that's for the next generation. No, of course not. Right. Absolutely. Somebody had to have started it at least. Sure. I mean, this is the picture that the CSB has, and it's just incredible. Um, is that in, in chapter 40, verse 4, and in 43, 10, where it says, House of Israel? Does that refer specifically to the Jewish people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That terminology, House of Israel? House of Israel is, is, is the Jews. You know, I was watching a um, documentary on, on building the pyramids. Okay. You talk about models, and they, they were showing how they determined the size of some of those blocks. You know, 18 tons for one single block. How they had to stack it on each other. Uh, uh, I forget the name of the the, 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 uh, the field at that time, but he wanted it to be certain height, certain width, and he wanted it to be above ground. And they had to build models to show how they could offset each block so it would stand on top of each other. Uh, yeah, they did have models. Well, we don't want to get too deep in this because we got seven more chapters. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, 43.10, they speak to us. It says that phrase that, so that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. I wonder if that speaks to a purpose for all this. Too. It certainly speaks to that generation, right? Yeah. When you were saying this to be an encouragement to them, there this is a period of judgment, and I wonder if it could be, hey, you had to tell it. You, I gave you measures, I gave you specifics, and look what you did with it. It could be a reminder of judgment. It could rem- be all kinds of ways for God to communicate to His people in a very visual way. Yeah. Isn't it? If you don't mind um, to turn to 43, 10, 40, uh, chapter 43, verse 10, okay. and uh, 11. As for you, mortal, describe the temple to the house of Israel, and let them measure the pattern, and let them be ashamed of their iniquities. They are ashamed of all that we have done, make known to them the plan of the temple, its arrangement, access, and its entrances in the whole building. All its ordained uh, ordinance, Cardinal's temple, actually, and its Entire plane and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that we may observe and follow the entire plane and all its ordinance. Ordinance. Yeah. So, this is uh, where I 
in Pattinson where I think about that it's a it's a, a measurement for a spiritual a spiritual temple situations, spiritual dimensions. They would have received these measurements before Ezra and Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem. Because yep. this was while he was still in exile. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the temple wasn't rebuilt to these dimensions, you know, they already had the dimensions and, and it, they didn't use them when they were. Well, they didn't have the, the resources to build anything of this magnitude by any means. But if God had wanted it to be done. Oh, they could have certainly done yeah. it, sure, absolutely. Yeah. But they were doing that in their own strength in many regards. Right. Wasn't it kind of like Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Because it would have showed the statue and all the materials, and the only difference between that and this is that that was translated. If that wasn't translated, would we, would we be arguing about that too? What if it means something completely different? There's so many visions that are just have so much detail and are so strange, but only until they're translated. Do we actually understand what they mean? I mean, it could mean pretty much anything. Sure. Sure. The Jewish people are very detail-oriented. When we were in Europe, we went to Prague. There was a synagogue there. We weren't able to go inside. They were talking about like all the records, the genealogies, the... Jews were keeping up generation and generation. So the, and it's like uh, prior to the Holocaust and post-Holocaust, but either way, like if you were a family living in Prague, you know, you could trace your ancestry like long ways back. And that's even how they brought all the Jews back, all the Israeli soldiers that were sponsored, it was the same for them how they knew exactly hundreds of generations back where their families were being traced. That means the promises are important to them in very little sense. Which is why this chapter 40 would have been important to them. The whole vision would have been incredibly important to them. Every detail, every promise, every commitment that God was making to them. They wouldn't have known any other way of having their sins atoned for other than bloody sacrifices. So to t- for them to know that God's still going to have sacrifices in the temple would have speak to the fact that the atonement continues for them, that there's potential for forgiveness. All right, go get your children if you have one of children. <laughs>